Good morning. Good morning. All right, turn with me, Hebrews 11, chapter 17. Uh, I have a test for you to begin our service. Which is better, Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks? That's, wow. Okay, there are more non-Christians in this audience than I anticipated. Okay, all right, that's fine. Starbucks is the better one, now that we got that off the table. I'd like to tell you the story of um, a Dunkin' Donuts in the area. I will not name this Dunkin' Donuts um, by location, but let me just say that I've shunned this Dunkin' Donuts. I will not go back to this Dunkin' Donuts, and I'd like to tell you why. Because 100%, without exaggeration, 100% of the time that I've ordered from this Dunkin' Donuts, they have gotten my order wrong. 100%. They've never gotten my order right. I think I've gone there six times. They drive me insane. Uh, so I'd drive away, and I would be like, I did not order a garlic bagel. I can't eat garlic. My wife is allergic to garlic. If I eat garlic, she doesn't go near me. I have to sleep in a different bedroom, okay? Like, this ain't happening. So I'm like, I don't order lattes because your foofy drinks stink. I don't want them, right? That's why I go to Starbucks. So I'm sitting here, and I'm frustrated. So I come back around, and I'm like, hey, my order isn't right. And they always argue with me. They're like, no, that's what you ordered. No, I remember. That's what you ordered. I'm like, I wouldn't. Literally, these words would never come out of my mouth, Okay. This is not what I order. Every single time they give me a hard time. And then they do this. The eye roll. (sighs) Do you want my business or not? That's what I want to shout, but I can't because apparently that's not pastor-like and people know me in this area. So trying to be a good boy. And uh, anyway, so I have shunned them. I refuse to go back. And I've asked myself this question multiple times. Has anybody trained anybody on staff at this Dunkin' Donuts? And have you tested them? Because they're failures. Uh, They cannot execute the simple mission of Dunkin' Donuts, which is to give me a donut and a bagel. No, coffee. That's disgusting. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) You know what I'm saying. So Then there are certain jobs. There are certain jobs that have a significantly more amount of weight and responsibility. There are some jobs where um, people's lives are on the lines. I'd like to illustrate this with um, doctors. Um, How many of you in this room have ever had to take the MCAT test? Anybody? Anybody? None? Wow. We had at least two or three in the last one. Uh, I'd like to tell you what is required to become a doctor. Number one, you have to get a bachelor's degree with a significantly higher GPA than most of you got. Uh, Number one. Number two, you have to pass the MCAT, the Medical College Admissions Test. It's designed to assess verbal reasoning, problem-solving, writing skills, and knowledge of biology, physics, general chemistry, and organic chemistry. Wow, okay, not going to pass that one. Um, then you have to go to graduate school from an accredited, from an accredited med school. Um, usually those are four years. The first two years are classes. The second two years are usually clinical experiences. After that, you have to complete a residency program. Depending on the um, field that you want to go into, it can range between three years and seven years. We're not done yet. Then when your residency is done, you need to get licensed. You have to take the USMLE test, the United States Medical License licensing exam test and after you finally get your license you can be a doctor but even then you have to take continuing education credits regularly every single year to make sure that you're not becoming less and less smart and you're up and up on all the latest technology let me tell you that's a lot of tests right 
And every single one of these tests is designed and organized to make sure that you don't kill people. Can I get an amen for everybody who's ever gone to see a doctor? You know what I'm saying? It's interesting because the weightier the responsibility, um, the more significant, the more intense the preparation, the more important it is that you be tested and evaluated before you get promoted to the next level. Like if you can't even pass a basic biology test, you should not get accepted into med school. Okay. Uh, In the same way in God's kingdom, God tests his children regularly. That God has organized our experience in this world in such a way, I want you to hear me, that you and I as followers of God are tested regularly because the weight and the responsibility of the missions that he has in front of us are that important that he doesn't just throw random people at weighty responsibilities, crossing his fingers and hoping that we're just going to do an okay job. That God actually takes the missions he gives us very seriously, so he tests us and he evaluates us. I wanted to find the word test, in case you don't know what it is, but it's an organized event to evaluate competency. It is an organized event. It's not haphazard. It's not random. It's an organized event to evaluate competency. Now, we're going to talk about faith tests, because here's what God tests, your faith. And depending on whether you pass, fail, whether you get a C- minus or a D plus, whatever it is, God is testing you to not just evaluate your faith, but to evaluate your readiness for the next part of the mission that he has for you personally. So here's how we would define a faith test. It's an event allowed, ordained, or permitted by God that evaluates your trust in him. If you've heard me teach for any time, you've heard me say the following statement, that God allows, ordains, or permits all events in all of human history. I've been asked multiple times, Michael, what is the difference between allowing and permitting? Let me explain this. Um, when God allows something to happen in your life, usually it's because willing agents, it might be an angel, a demon, you, a friend, somebody else, he sees that you have intent to do something, and he could stop it, but he decides not to stop it. He allows it to happen. Um, Ordained refers to events that God meticulously, specifically, personally orchestrates and organizes. Um, He takes responsibility for all of the events of this test. God is intricately involved in the details of organizing and ordaining these events. Well, the last category, permitted, applies to a unique scenario. Uh, If you go back to the story of Job, remember Satan came to God and basically said, if you take away everything from Job, what's God going to do? Or what's Job going to do? He's going to forsake you. He's going to abandon you. And so God permitted Satan to test Job. Uh, Permission are these plausible scenarios where somebody comes before God and requests permission to test you. These are different than just allowing people to test you. This is where people need to get, or angels or demons would need permission to test you. And so here's what we say, that God allows, ordains, or permits all things. And when it comes to your testing, when it comes to how God evaluates and tests your faith, I want you to get this, that God allows, ordains, or permits your faith to be tested on a regular basis. Many of you right now, this, this provokes a little bit of like fear and anxiety. And I would like to kind of poke at that for a moment and tell you why there might be a little bit of fear and anxiety as we talk about this. Because for many Christians, subconsciously, like you don't choose this, but you realize in moments like this, you have a false view of God. That God is a grumpy grandpa or an insecure teacher at a university who has to have a failure quota rate, right, Um, in order to make himself feel like he's a good teacher, right? You get this idea that God is a grumpy grandpa or an insecure teacher and that God wants you to fail and that if you fail, he's going to be like, F, 
And it stands for your life, which is a failure, right? That's how some of you view God. Instead, I would like to give you maybe a better perspective to, to view God. In Scripture, the primary way we deal with God in the New Covenant, in the New Testament under Jesus, is as a dad. That God is our loving Father. And in the same way that I have plans for my kids, and that there are things that I want to see developed in my children, I have a plan for them. And when my kids fail, I am not sitting here ready to write a big F over their life and to condemn them. But here's what I do. Um, I want to walk along with my kids, pick them up from their failures, and help them do it again until they get it right. Why? Because that's what a good dad does. A terrible dad enters in and says, failure, I can't believe you did that. You'll never be good enough. Most people actually attribute to God the voice of Satan and condemnation in their life. Apparently, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And so when you epically fail and you fall on your face, um, it's not the voice of God that puts the F over your life and says you're a failure. And so here's what we, we, we get to, that God has a detailed, organized, specific plan that he has, not just for me, not just for Abraham, but for every single follower of Christ, every child, son or daughter of God in this room, that God has a detailed plan to develop your faith through tests. Now this, again, uh, I would encourage you, do not let this make you uncomfortable. In fact, our first point in your notes under point number one is walk boldly into faith tests. Now let's define the word faith so we're on the same page here. Faith comes from the Greek word pistis. Again, I say it's my favorite word. It's clear why. And uh, if faith is translated in the English as either trust, belief, or faith. You see, the Greek word is very robust. It has a lot of depth to it, right? You can't just throw English words at it because it has a broad meaning to it. At the end of the day, here's what it is. It's confident trust based on a reliable relationship. Here is what God wants to develop in every one of you. He wants to grow your confidence in him through experience. So that as you walk by faith, as you walk boldly into faith tests, and you see that God will not leave you, will not abandon you, will not forsake you, but will keep his promises every time, that when the second faith test comes, you now have a reservoir of experience that tells you this, God is reliable. I can walk by faith into the future with my God. I can do whatever he asked me to do because he's never let me down in the past. And every day that God asks you to do something hard or difficult, here's what he's doing. He's growing and deepening your faith, your trust in him, your relationship with him. Lest you say this is unfair, let me just give you an illustration that I think would help you intuitively understand this. If you have a son or if you have a daughter and there is anything in that kid's life that stands between your relationship, what will you do if you have the power? Kill it, right? If it's a toy, if it's a hobby, if it's a friend, if it's an experience, and your child's relationship with this thing or these people stands in between your relationship with your child, what will you do? You'll get rid of it, right? And that's what God does. God does not want to let anything stand in the way of our relationship with him, our trust in him, our reliance on him, our confidence in him. And what God wants to do is get rid of anything that threatens that faith, that pistis, that confidence, that trust, 
that belief. And so as we get into Hebrews chapter 11, here's kind of the big context. Hebrews is written to a group of broken, disenfranchised, discouraged Jewish believers who were tempted to give up on Jesus. And here's what he does. He shows them this hall of faith, this litany of people who believed, who trusted in God. Um, when all seemed lost, these people walked with God to the very edge of their life, and they believed, and they trusted in him. And here's what um, the author of Hebrews wanted to do for this discouraged group of people. He wanted them to look at this list and to say, if God could do it for them, then surely God could do it for me. If God could be faithful to them and never let them down, then surely God could be faithful to me. He wants to build their faith, which, by the way, this is why we're doing this series. We want to grow your faith. That's what I want to do. By the end of this series, I would love for you to be able to walk boldly into faith tests. Let's go to chapter 11, verse 17. Talk about the life of Abraham. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested... Let's, let's just get a word out of your vocabulary. Was he tempted? Say no. No. He was not tempted. Does God tempt his children? The answer is say no. No. God does not ever tempt his children ever to sin. That is not what God does. God will, without hesitation, test you as any good instructor or teacher or dad would do. Before the dad or the teacher gives you more responsibility, you need to evaluate current competency. Lest you put a child or somebody in way over their head to the point where that thing would crush them. God will not put you in a circumstance that you cannot, by his grace, accomplish and pass that test, right? And so here's what we find right out. God is not tempting. I know some people, when they read this, they automatically interpret this as attempt, and it's not the right word. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. Rewind. Genesis 22, uh, verse 2. I want to read to you what actually happens in this story. God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now pause for a moment. See the word Moriah? Take that word, put it in the margin of your mind, saved it. We're going to come back to it later. Got it? Moriah. Say it with me, Moriah. Moriah, good. To the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. A three-day journey, Abraham, two servants, and his son walk up, and I imagine what Abraham is thinking throughout the entire process. Why would God ask me to do this? Could I do this? For 4,000 years, God's people have read this story, heard tales of the story. And let me tell you what it has done for almost every single person who has heard it. It has made us say the following. My faith isn't there yet. I'd just be straight with you. You, you told me to take my little four-year-old boy, though he can punch me in the face very hard, <laughs> if you saw it on Facebook. <laughs> Still hurts. Um, <laughs> and you told me to tie him up and put him on a bundle of wood and cut him open and set him on fire. I don't care what, I, don't, I, I cannot imagine any world right now where I would trust God enough to do that. I mean, just do you feel the weight of that? It's interesting because when he describes him, he says, your son whom you love. I mean, this isn't just like, oh, it's that kid. You know, like, oh, fine, get rid of him. You know, <laughs> he's a nuisance anyways. It's his only son. It's the one, it's the one whom he loves. Already big picture, we just see a few things here. Number one, God has a specific plan for Abraham's faith development. 
This was not an arbitrary moment where a bored God said, let's play games with our people, right? This was an intentional, organized test by God for Abraham to evaluate his faith and to see if he's really ready for the next step. That's what's going on here. Number two, God accomplishes his plans for us through tests. That God grows our faith, and I want you to catch this, he does it through tests. You may not like it, you can take that up with him, but this is how he does it. First Peter 1, 7, I want you to just let this soak in. It says this, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That a tested faith, proven genuine, is of more value to God than all the purest gold on the planet. So God would, without hesitation, take away all your money if it meant that he purified your faith. Why? Because we see throughout Scripture what pleases the heart of God the most is trust. It's sons and daughters who trust him no matter what the cost might be. And here's what it says. When you're found in him, the results would be praise and honor and glory where at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when he comes back, which he surely will to judge the living and the dead, that God would look at your faith and say, yes, yes, there would be a round of applause because of your trust in him. Number three, we see that God's tests are usually, usually a threat to something we greatly value. Remember the rich, rich young ruler, what did he threaten? His stuff, his money. The disciples threatened their jobs, leave everything you have, leave your jobs, come and follow me. Abraham threatened his kids, his future. Look at verse 18, it says this, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, if you don't know the context, Abraham's son, his name was Isaac, good job. And Isaac was really important because Isaac was born um, when Abraham was very old. Sarah was 80 years old. Um, He wanted a son and she was barren and God performed an absolute miracle. And God had promised Abraham that you will be a blessing. You will have a name. He promised him that his descendants would be as many as the stars of the sky. And every single one of these promises, you need to catch this to understand the weight of the story. Every single one of the promises was bound up in this son. It was not implicit, but explicit. All of the promises that I have for you, your legacy, your future, your blessings, all of these things must happen through this kid, this son, Isaac. No Isaac, no future, no blessings, no rewards. If Isaac dies without an heir, hear me, God is a liar. God is not keeping his word because every single one of the promises that God gave to Abraham were contingent on Isaac. He was the conduit through every, every single one of them. And here's what you need to get, though, about, about Abraham big picture. This wasn't Abraham's first rodeo. Do you guys know that? Like, it's not like this was Abraham's first test. His first test, by the way, was, hey, pagan Abraham who worships polytheistic false gods and does disgusting sexual things with people and is affiliated with gods who actually do require you to burn your firstborn child on altars. You know that? Abraham, abandon that whole religion. Leave your land and go to the land that I'm going to show you. Where are we going, God? I'll tell you when you get there. Which way do I go? I'm not going to tell you. Just walk right? That was his first faith test. Abraham got to actually see God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know if you've ever seen like fire come from sky and destroy an entire city and make a pillar of salt of your 
relative's wife. That's weird, but uh, he got to see an 80-year-old wife barren, right? No 80-year-old woman should be having babies, by the way. No offense, but that's like not healthy, okay? But this woman, she was able to have a baby at 80 years old, right? That's, that's pretty amazing. God has watched or Abraham has watched God do big, amazing things. And so by the time Abraham gets here, it's not like this is his first rodeo. He has watched God come through for himself over and over and over again and do things that honestly felt impossible because they were, but with God, they were possible. Here's what Abraham knew that he knew. God is always good. God is always honest. And God is always, always, always up to something awesome if I just give him enough time. If I just give him enough time. Here's where most, most of us fail. We don't give God the time. We don't give God the time. Abraham thought initially, um, if I leave, the promise will just be this land. What he didn't realize is that there were so many blessings that God had in store for him, but all Abraham could see what was right in front of him immediately. And so here's what, here's what happens for so many people. They give up way too soon, and they forfeit all the blessing that God wants to do through these tests. Abraham knew that God was good, he was honest, and he's always up to something. This test is ultimately not about this. It's like my, my first grader, right? She's got to take a math test, right? And she's so, I don't want to take a math, I don't like it, right? But you know, you don't pass your math test, you don't pass first grade, you don't pass first grade, you don't pass second grade. This math test is not about passing the math test, is it? The test is never about the immediate success. The test is always about the long game that God is playing with your life and the plan that he has. My first grader has no categories whatsoever about college right now, but we are having her test herself and examine herself and test and test and test and test, ultimately for something way bigger than she's even able to see. This is what Abraham came to realize about God. He's always up to something, and if I just wait long enough, it's going to be an amazing plan. Verse 19 tells us what was so amazing about Abraham's faith. Let me, let me just say this. Was it his willingness to do it, to actually kill his son? The answer is no. Was it his willingness to give up his family legacy through his beloved firstborn son, Isaac? Nope. Here, here's what was so amazing about his faith. That Abraham, in verse 19, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. No, Abraham had never seen anybody raised from the dead. Here's what he knew. If I kill my son and God doesn't bring him back to life, God's a liar. And God would never lie to me because God has proven his character over and over and over again. I want to read to you from Genesis 22, verse 9, um, what happened in this story. When they came to the place of which God told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. I think this is one of the most important parts of the story because God loves, I just call them Red Sea moments. Go back to Moses. The Israelites are weak. They are disenfranchised. They're slaves. And they're being hunted by ferocious and vicious and very angry Egyptians. They get to the edge of of the Red Sea. And what do they say? Why did you bring us here to die? Would it have been better to go back to Egypt? Blah, 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 blah. And at this point, God's just like beating his head. Oh, what is wrong with these people? Right? 
And they were complaining. And Abraham basically says, shut your mouth and watch because God's going to move. And they're grumbling and complaining, right? And it's like, you can just feel like the tension in the story is like, and then they're just waiting. And you hear the, the smoke and the, you see the smoke and you're just looking at like, okay, these people are going to kill us, God. You got to move, you got to move, you got to move. And God waits. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And it's like he waits until the very last second. Here's the problem. If you give up before that moment, you miss the greatest blessing of all. And so here's what happens. Red Sea moments, these regular moments in life where God takes you to the very, very edge, to the last moment, and you're like, really, God, couldn't you have intervened sooner? And he said, yes, I could have, but your faith wouldn't have grown as much. And more than you having this stuff or your life or your toys or your job or your home or whatever it is you're waiting for, I'd rather you have me. That's what's most important. And so God is more than happy to literally wait until the last plausible second. Why? So that you would walk away from this experience trusting him more than you ever thought you could have. Most people give up in these moments. It's in these last moments that your faith is not just evaluated, but these are the moments where your faith actually grows. It goes on. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. It's like the greatest moment of worship he's probably ever had. So Abraham called the name of that place, quote, the Lord will provide, end quote. Why would God ever test us like this? Number one, God's tests reveal the true quality of our faith. You do not need to be afraid to stare your mustard seed faith in the face. The only reason you need to be afraid of the quality of your faith is if you're afraid of God because you view him as some abusive dad or grumpy grandpa. God is a loving father and there is no safer place to fail than in the presence of your loving dad. When my son fails little tests or little things, it's interesting because we'll put him in a timeout and he'll be in trouble and he'll be crying. He won't like whatever discipline we have for him. But it's really interesting because here's what he'll do. He will run back and cry in my arms, the arms of the one disciplining him, which is so ironic to me. And he will cry and where he wants to be is with me. Isn't that crazy? Why? Because even when he fails... He's failing in a safe place because his view of his dad is even if I do something wrong, even if I'm disciplined, you are still safe. And that's the kind of view that we have to have of God when we fall flat on our face, when we give up those Red Sea moments and we're the grumbling Israelites complaining and complaining, why did you bring us here? I can't believe you did this to me. And somebody has to look at us and say, shut your mouth and watch, right? You know those moments? It reveals our faith. Don't be afraid to look in the mirror because you're safe. And here's what, here's what I know. God will take you and now give you another test to allow you to grow that faith again. Number two, God's tests develop our faith. That every time you pass a test, you realize that God is good and he is faithful. And now every single test that you pass, as small or as big as it might be, your confidence in God grows, which means your trust in him, your faith in him grows. God's tests sharpen our faith. I guarantee you this. Abraham will never hold Isaac back from God ever again. 
that there is probably nothing in Abraham's life that he will hold back. His faith is sharper. It is stronger. It is more precise. He trusts God in a way that he never has before. God's tests reveal our readiness. Here's what you don't know. What you don't know is if you pass the test, what could God have in store for you next? Here's what I know with God. He's not going to put you in a position that is beyond your competence or your character where you will be crushed by it. What God will do is he will evaluate your faith and he will graduate you to the next level. Now, will it be hard? Will it be difficult? Will it be frustrating? Will you feel like you're in above your head? Yes, but do you have everything you need to pass every single test that God would choose to orchestrate for your life? The answer is yes. God is not out to crush you for the sake of crushing you. He may want to crush your unbelief and your sin, but he is not out to crush you. He is a good dad. I want to develop character in my son. I don't want to destroy him. I want to kill the sin in him, but make alive the righteousness in him. I want to see the virtues in him come alive at the same time kill these things that threaten him. And that's how God is with us. And passing God's test always grows our confidence. I guarantee you, Abraham's confidence in God, his absolute, like, God, whatever you say, you tell me to go anywhere, and here's what I know. It's going to work out because you told me to do it, and you're always good, and you never lie to me. I think there's, there's some accusations in this story that we got to call out. Um, I don't want to be afraid of some of the hard things here. So here, here's one. Would God ever ask us to break his own law? Here, here's a challenge. Unless I take 30 minutes, and you're here till 3 in the afternoon. Um, submit that as a Q&A podcast question. I challenge someone to do that. Um, but doesn't this make God sadistic? I, I want to tell you some of the context here so you can understand why God even did this. Because Abraham came from a world where the foreign gods, these polytheistic, evil, disgusting gods, would ask their followers to literally take their firstborn children, bind them up on a piece of wood, cut them open with a knife, and set them on fire. This was standard practice for deities of this time and era. Okay? So Abraham gets this call from God. I want you to go do this. this. This feels crazy to us because the God we know, his character revealed in the scripture would never, ever, ever, ever ask us to do something like this. But God is up to something, right? Because God knows he's not going to actually have him do it. Here's, here's what God is trying to make clear to Abraham. When he shows up at that last moment, at that Red Sea moment, and as he holds up the, the knife in his hand, and God says, stop, Abraham, what you're doing. Don't do it. And then God gives him his own sacrifice and replace. Here's what Abraham learns once and for all and forevermore. The righteous, holy God of the Israelites is nothing like the polytheistic, pagan, disgusting gods. Those gods would have required Abraham to go through with it. I think what God was doing was dismantling all of his ugly God concepts from a foreign pagan culture, and he's putting Abraham back together and saying, no, disgusting, false, untrue gods would require this of you. I want you to remember from this point on forevermore, I would never ask you to do this. This is not my MO. This is not how I work. I am not like these other gods. And I guarantee you the forgotten person in this story that we don't talk about is Isaac. God knows how old he was. Old as he could have been was 36. He could have been three or four years old. But I guarantee you this, in that moment, that son, that kid never, ever, ever ever forgot that the God of his father, the God of the Israelites, is nothing like these pagan, disgusting gods in these foreign lands. That this kid had this moment where his God concept was once and for all and forever altered, and God dismantled all the lies of culture that he had grown up with. I have often wondered, um, when Isaac sat there and he looked in the eyes of his dad, did he lay there compliantly? Did he cry? What did he do? Did he just have so much confidence in his dad that his dad would never hurt him, that he just laid there and said, see what happens. 
Did he yell? Did he scream? He had to tie him up eventually, so we see that at least it wasn't as easy as maybe we hope it would be. But here's what I know. That kid leaves, and he will never, ever forget the character of his father. His father loves his God more than him, and the character of his God, this God, is unlike all the other pagan gods that would be a siren to Isaac's heart for the rest of his life. Number two, be bold through faith tests. Don't just walk into them. Don't give up in them. Be bold through them. There's a story in verse 30 of the walls of Jericho. It's just this one little verse. It's easy to just kind of like read past it, not think twice about it. Here's what it says. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Okay, so here's what I've learned. God is not hesitant to put me or any of of his other kids into positions where we are mocked approached, accused, made fun of, look ridiculous, right? Um, In fact, God is not hesitant in any way to put you in a position to make you look kind of ridiculous to your friends, your family, your coworkers. Um, God's just not afraid to do that. We're afraid of that, right? But God's not uh, because that's just not the kind of games that God plays. God is more than willing to put you in those circumstances. And I don't, I don't think fully we understand when we read the story of Jericho, what was going on. It's kind of a numb story, you know? So like every single year at our trunk retreat in Iwana, um, the kids come by and for like six years in a row, I do one story. And it's my story. No one's allowed to take it. I, Joshua on the Battle of Jericho, Jericho, right? If you go on my iTunes, um, the VeggieTales version of that is my most played song in my iTunes list. Because I just play it on repeat once a year, every year, so on and on and on and on and on. But we're so numb to the story that we think these, these Israelite priests and, and, and the army of Joshua must have just been so confident, like, of course God's got it. I think we forget that to walk around a city um, every single day looks really dumb. They've never seen God break down walls like this, Okay. And so God is like, I want you to take the promised land. There are these disgusting religions that you have to destroy, right? That's why God did it, because they're not like the religions of modern-day global world, 21st century America, or anything around us, right? They are more vile than anything we probably have categories for. And God wanted them obliterated from the earth because they were doing unspeakable harm to many, many people and generations. So God says, I want you to come in. I want you to take over the land. I want you to kill everybody. And uh, Jericho stood in their way. And Jericho was an impenetrable city with this huge 26-foot-high wall. Uh, It was actually two walls. And in between them were houses. So Rahab the prostitute, remember her? She lived inside the wall. 26 feet here, 25 feet on the inner wall. Um, Some people say that the wall could have been as thick as 30 or 45 feet, right? This is an impenetrable wall. This is is a big deal. And so God's like, yeah, I want you to go over there. I'm going to give you the city. Walk around the city uh, one time every day for six days. On the seventh day, walk around seven times and then shout real loud and the walls will come tumbling down. Right? Do you hear how stupid that sounds? So imagine it's day one and all the people of Jericho are on the top. And they're like, you guys are morons. You guys are eating whatever. You know, you figure it out. And then and just making fun of them every day. And then by day three or four, the people of Israel are like, why would our God subject us to looking this stupid over and over and over and over again? Well, God's not concerned about it because God knows the outcome, right? So day five comes and day six comes and and the people are exhausted. Probably the people in Jericho are like, this is just a joke, whatever, leave them alone. Well, day seven comes. And now they don't have to just walk around one time, but seven times. That's exhausting, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Like, this is a long day. And I think we get to this idea that they just ran and they had unending energy and it was like walking around our church, right? No, this is like a little bit bigger than that. This took a little bit more time. Um, they were exhausted. And so I imagine by the end, they're like, everybody shout. 
and the walls come tumbling down. And the people are just like, no, like this is not even plausible. Now, what would have happened if they would have given in to every impulse to walk away in the middle of this process? They would have forfeited the opportunity to see God do something absolutely impossible. This army had never seen God tear down walls before. This is not in their categories of reality. And so when God asked them to do this, this is an exhausting, frustrating, and humiliating experience. And God is willing. He is happy to say, I would like to invite you into exhaustion and humiliation and mockery. But hear me, it's only going to be temporary. And I will vindicate your name. Every time. And we're like, we want people to like us. And he's like, that's not the most important thing to me. (laughs) And the battle of Jericho is just this beautiful example of God asking people to look ridiculous, to look foolish, to wait to the very end in the last second. I mean, could you imagine the grumbling and the complaining on the seventh day? Like, well, can't we just stop at three times and yell now? It's like, no, you must keep going. Be bold to the very end of your faith test. James, James chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. This is what it's doing. It's giving you this resilience and let it have its full effect. Don't give up too soon. Don't do it. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And by perfect, he does not mean sinless. He means mature. That you may be, be a mature follower of Jesus, not lacking in faith, but you have everything you need to walk into whatever test that God would have for you. I'm going to close with a couple encouragements. Number one is, very simply, God is going to ask some of you to do something crazy. Uh, your friends, your family, your coworkers are going to look at you and say, you're not so. What are you doing? Your pastors and your church family will say, yes. That, that is awesome. That is from God. I don't know what it is. Um, I don't want to write your faith story for you in this moment, but there are going to be some of you here who God asked you to do something crazy. And this crazy thing that he asked you to do is going to be preparatory for something else that he has in store. And then there'll become another faith test after you do this crazy thing, and there'll be another crazy thing. But you know what? When you do crazy things enough time, crazy things get easier to do, right? And when God proves himself faithful every single time, it's easier to walk into faith tests because you, you know even when you stumble all over yourselves and do dumb things that God is going to pick you up and not condemn you. And so God's going to ask you to do some crazy things. Here's, here's one. Um, for some of you, you're like, I cannot tithe. I need all my money. I need total security. And God's like, I want you to be generous to your church and to the poor and your friends who have a lot of need. Give a lot of money away, like 10%. Now 15, like go crazy, right? I don't know. Pray about it. Talk to God. Even worse, God's going to ask some of you to serve. Oh, like the, the, new, the new challenge of 21st century American Christians is, oh, can I just pay for my time, right? God's going to ask you to serve. He's going to ask you to serve every week. That might just blow your mind. You mean, you mean I have to give up an hour and a half a week of my life for Jesus Christ? That's like pushing it, kid. Like you don't, you don't get it. Really? Like, it might be a big risk, but there are people who serve three, four, five times a week, and they have full-time jobs. How do they do it? I don't know. And multiple children. And so God might ask you to actually do something hard and crazy and to give up watching three hours of TV a week so you can go serve and be with God's people. I know. I know I'm threatening you guys. Like, this is real hard right now. I get it. But no, for some of you, that is, like, the worst thing I could plausibly ask of you is that you would step up and you step out. God might ask some of you to leave the comforts of VCB and go set up every week and actually go to church at Village Church East. Like, crazy thought. 
God loves to make us do really difficult and hard things so that we learn to trust him. And then you'll get to the other end of it, right? When, it, when the test is done and the dust settles, right? And the Red Sea collapses on all the Egyptians and they all die and you cheer. And you're going to say, oh, you were right the whole time. Following you is way better. That's genius. Wow, I should figure that out sooner. God's going to ask some of you to do something crazy. Number two. God applauds movement and not results. So we're like American productive, efficient people, right? We want results, results, results. I do at least. Um, I think what God is most excited about is that you're doing it. He bears fruit. That's his job. He, he does all the growth, all that kind of stuff. Your job is movement. So I don't know what this faith test is for you right now. I don't know what this next risk that you have to take is. Um, but here's what I know. I'm not going to promise you that like all your dreams are going to come true through this, but I am going to promise you that God will applaud every time you take a step into the unknown and trust him. That's what I know. Don't, be, don't worry about how it's all going to work out because what makes God the most happy and what grows us the most is just taking these steps and walking boldly into them. And then number three, I'll close with this. There is no risk, and I mean zero risk in following God. There is a lot of perceived risk, right? There is objectively zero risk in doing what God asks you to do. In fact, the greatest risk is ignoring what God asks you to do. Here's what I know about God. He's a good dad. And when I ask my son to do something and he ignores me, do you know what I do? I discipline him. Why? Because I'm a good dad, (laughs) mostly sometimes. But in that moment, (laughs) I'm being a good dad, right? And so the bigger risk for my son, right, is disobeying and not obeying. And here's what we don't get. We're like, oh, I don't want to tithe. Oh, I don't want to serve. Oh, I don't know what my next going to do. I don't want to have that conversation. Oh, I don't want to get rid of this part of my life. And it's like, okay, all right, there's no risk. I get you feel like it's a risk, right? But nobody ever gets to the other side of the Red Sea and says, I wish I would have stayed back, right? What would have been the risk for the, for the Israelites staying on this side of the Red Sea? Death, right? That's it. And what was, what was the actual? There's no risk at all. And this is what God does. He says to you, there's no risk in this. The risk is when you disobey me. And so I just could not encourage you more. Maybe today the risk, this crazy thing that God is asking you to do, is for the first time trust in Jesus Christ. You have been to church. You have thought about it. Your family has taught you. You've read the Bible. You've heard sermons. And you're like, I, but if I come to him, he's going to require this of me. There's no risk. The risk is in holding on to whatever this is. That's the risk. Come to Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. Take this step of faith. Overcome all of the perceived risk and scariness of it. And here's what you need to know. You're walking through the Red Sea, and I get that it's scary looking at all of this water on both sides of you, and you're walking in the middle of all of this chaos. But I'm telling you this, when you get to the other side and you watch God close the Red Sea, you won't regret it. You won't regret it. For some of you, you you need to be baptized. This may sound so trite, but for some of you, you've come to Christ, but you are petrified of being in front of people and telling people that you have trusted in Jesus Christ. More than that, like this is a beautiful opportunity to guilt your friends and family to come into church <laughs> because you're getting baptized. Like you gotta come, right? It's like, I love it. Like we'll go to any church if our family's getting baptized. We'll, we will leave all of our commitments if our nephew's getting, we'll play the same game, get baptized and invite him to come. But you're petrified. What would they think of me? What if I'm not a perfect Christian? What if I'm a hypocrite? You won't be a perfect Christian. You are a hypocrite. Get baptized. We're off the table. We're good. Fine. But there are these things. I don't know what your next move is, but I'm just telling you, take the step. Don't be afraid because when you get to the other side of the Red Sea, it's always, always worth it. Let's pray. Father, truly love you so much. And um, we do just confess that we are weak in faith. We have so many aspects of our life that are scary and we hold on to way too hard. And 
Um, Lord, we want to believe you. I know I believe you in my head, but we want to believe you in our heart to the point where it actually produces motion, um, where we actually do these hard things and we walk into the unknown and we walk through the Red Sea and we trust you in this process. But God, um, we do confess to you that we need you to grow our faith. And even as we ask that, we know the answer is not like some magical thing where you just give us more, but you're going to grow us through tests. So Lord, may we walk boldly into them and through them to the very end. And I do, I want to thank you that you do not test us so that we fail. You test us so that we can pass, so that we can do the things you've asked us to do. I just thank you that you're so good to us. Got any notions in people's mind that you're a grumpy grandpa or you're um, some instructor that's just waiting to fail a certain amount of people, God, would you just erase those from our minds? For those of us who had really bad dads, really bad moms who just really distorted our God concept, would you just erase those for a moment? Would you just allow us for, even in this moment, to see that you are our dad and you are good and you are holy, you're a promise keeper, and you have a plan for us that is good, and when we fall like a good dad, you pick us up and you put us back on the path. Lord, some of us here have come up, fallen off that path for a long time, and And God, I thank you that your mercy and your grace is so beautiful. It doesn't have a time limit. And so God, I just pray that for those who have strayed, that you would would even just get a glimpse of you, their Heavenly Father who loves them and is ready to put them back on the path of this faith journey. We thank you, we love you, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.